Really? And uh, what's your master's in? Or uh, how many masters do you have? You could have several. I have one master's uh, um, and a PhD. Um, the master's in ed psych, educational psychology, and the, okay. the PhD is pretty much in ed psych too. It was called um, learning, cognition, and development. But my area of emphasis was reading. Oh, nice. So, but nice. I, you can't really go to a university and get a master's in reading without getting whole language. At least True. at that time, I think maybe it might be a little bit better now in some, a few places, but not many. True. So we're live. Great. So good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. I'm your host, Ashley, and we are here today with Dr. Dale Webster of, I always want to say CORE Learn, but it's just CORE, right? CORE stands for Consortium on Reaching Excellence in Education. Um, it was called a long time ago, Consortium on Reading Excellence. Okay. Uh, when we moved to math um, or added math onto our services, we couldn't continue calling it reading only. So we changed our name to Consortium on Reaching Excellence in Education. So it's a mouthful, so we say core. It is confusing because our um, URL is corelearn.com. And so people want to call it core learning or core learn. Gotcha. So. Which I, you know, definitely made the mistake and went core learning. So. <laughs> I'm glad I caught that. So, and thanks for correcting that. It was great. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm glad you caught it too. <laughs> um, so tell us, tell us what CORE is. I think probably, you know, most of the people in California know what it is. I'm sure people outside of California, but within the parent community, you know, I don't know how many, within the parent community, I don't know how many parents know about the individual groups that exist. You know what I mean? So tell us about CORE. Absolutely. Um, CORE is, uh, has been around since 1995 or 96. Um, there's always kind of been a debate about when it actually started. So I like to say that time frame. Uh, Linda Diamond, um, who is the founder and just recently retired president of CORE, um, has been with the company since that time. And our California's former state superintendent, Bill Honig. So both Bill, both Bill Honig and Linda Diamond founded the company back in 95, 96. And um, what CORE is really is a professional learning company that provides professional learning services in evidence-based practices for teaching, reading, and language, um, and math. Wow. Um, yeah, so we, we aren't a curriculum. We don't have, we have some products and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but um, we are, we provide a professional learning service for school districts and our big push is to really help schools and districts implement the reading or math curriculum that they have um, and, and help them shore it up if there are gaps in the curriculum. Um, and if necessary, we help them and try to steer them in the direction of getting a new program that might be better, better aligned to the science of what we know about learning and teaching reading and math. Um, wow. Um, what kind of, what, so when you say math, that's, you know, because we focus so much on reading, what, yeah. but so many of our kids struggle in math too. <laughs> And it's interesting because our, you know, we started out with reading since 1996 and it was about 2010 that CORE switched over to math. So our math services still are not equal in terms of how much we deliver that as it is reading. Reading still gets primary 
um, attention mm -hmm. in our work. Um, and we're working in ways to, um, to build up our math services and bring attention to math. So um, and our parent company, Pivot Learning, has really um, involved, has gotten some Gates Foundation grants that have really emphasized math. And so we're involved in several projects now um, related to math. So that's very exciting for us. And we're working to kind of think about our, our math services and our kind of our math framework and trying to build that out to add some more um, attention to that. Because as you said, math is also very important. I think in light of the COVID crisis that's, you know, kids have been in school for really the past year or limited schooling, I should say, um, there's, you know, a lot of unfinished teaching and learning that needs to happen in both literacy and math. Definitely. And I find with math too, that it's not just the language of math. Sometimes it's how you communicate it as well. So <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so how, so do districts contract with you or do you provide professional development? I mean, can like a teacher reach out to you and say, I'm looking for professional development? How does, how does that work? Yeah, uh, so we use historically and, and still, we provide mainly our, our services are to schools and to districts. Um, we do have our online elementary reading academy now that um, individual teachers can register for. And we do have individuals that reach out to us. And we have um, about three or four times a year, we have what we call kind of national or mixed um, cohorts where anyone can register and we advertise that. So individuals can do that or small groups, but we do a lot of work with school districts that want a group of their teachers, you know, large numbers or maybe just a cohort of 15 to 30. Um, might join um, in on the um, online elementary reading academy. And we have, we have actually probably, um, I'd say about maybe seven to nine courses running right now simultaneously. Oh, wow. We have different, they're, they're asynchronous courses. I mean, you can do it kind of on your own time, mm -hmm. um, but it's facilitated. So we have seven different sessions that focus on the different components of reading and also reading assessment. And um, each one of those sessions lasts a week or two. Um, and so you have that, the, the participants have the flexibility to kind of work on their own time within that week or two that that session is running. But then the consultant will send an email out saying, we're starting our new session. You should have finished up all the requirements for the previous session. We're gonna move on to vocabulary now. Um, and so there's, there's a little bit of um, direction, if you will, um, and timeline. But within that timeline, you have flexibility. If that makes sense. No, it does totally. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm I'm thinking of you know how you're working with districts. You know those districts that are trying to make that switch from balanced literacy over to evidence-based practices based on science. How long do you typically engage with? I mean, because that's a, not a short transition, right? You know, when we interviewed Dr. Moach, she said prepare for, you know, up three to five years. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, so I guess you're guiding the teachers through that whole, not just guiding the teachers, but I guess guiding the leadership of a district through that whole process and help them steer the ship, I guess. Yes. Yeah, it's a very complex process and we have different levels of that um, happening in various districts across the country. As I, um, I stated, I think, or you stated that 
we're a California-based company, but we have national recognition. We work all over the country and have since the late 90s, um, really moving outside of California. So have a lot of national recognition. Our um, teaching reading source book, which is kind of what many people refer to as the Bible of teaching reading. It's a big purple book. I'm not sure if you've seen it, um, but it uh, has a lot of great information about the research, but also gives practical application. There's model lessons at the end of each chapter. Uh, you know, we have several chapters on, you know, letter recognition, irregular word reading, phonics, phonemic awareness, all the components of reading. Um, and each chapter has specific model lessons that mm -hmm. follow an explicit teaching format um, so that teachers really can use those as models. Um, for their curriculum that whatever curriculum that they're using and if they're feeling like there are things that are lacking um, our consultants can go in and help support utilizing the tenets of what they've learned in our reading academy to applying that to their core reading program and that's challenging depending on the core reading program that districts are using um, it it varies in the level of which they can make that general transfer application from their what they have in their curriculum and what that's telling them to do to kind of making that leap to more effective teaching and, and uh, explicit instruction. So it's it's a big lift. And if the program's too far afield from what the evidence is saying, then we start helping them think about and looking closely at their data um, and think about, you know, maybe you should get a supplemental curriculum to help support, say, the phonics and phonemic awareness piece. Or maybe if the, many districts are, you know, we're, we're talking to districts now and they're thinking, there's, they're saying, you know, we're, we're looking at um, adopting a new curriculum now. We're, we're actually exploring new programs now. So we can help them with that process as well. So it kind of varies on where they are in the continuum. Um, but one district that we're, that we're working with in the Santa Cruz area um, has was really um, in the balanced literacy realm and working with level text and predictable text and three queuing system. And um, they had a program um, that they really weren't using called SIPS. Um, mm -hmm. It's a program, a foundational skills program that's authored by John Scheffelbein, who recently passed away. He was a professor at Sacramento State, um, and it's published by the Collaborative Classroom. And um, we core partners with um, the Collaborative Classroom to provide professional development and support for SIPs in um, California. Okay. So we're work we've been working with this um, district near Santa Cruz for um, a few years now, I'd say since 2016 or 2017, um, to help them implement SIPs. So what they're doing now is they've, they've adopted Benchmark, which is the, one of the California adopted curricula, um, but recognize that there are weaknesses in that curricula as well in phonics and phonemic awareness. So they're just using SIPs in place of the um, foundational skills instruction that's in Benchmark. So we're really spending a lot of time helping them focus their attention on the implementation of SIPs. And um, they've done really well. Um, the, the, the district has a large population of um, migrant students and high population of English learners. And they're really excelling. And their third grade reading scores are really more and more kids are on grade level. Um, yeah, and so it's very exciting to see that growth and that in continual improvement every year. 
Uh, we did a, an actual uh, third-party evaluation of our work there. Uh, it, it, and what they found was that the student data, so we, we were able to compare some schools who had core supporting the implementation of SIPs uh, and some schools who did not receive that support, but they received training. So okay. the, to back up a little bit, what the research really shows is that providing just training to teachers without any coaching, follow-up coaching or job embedded support um, really does not help a lot with improvement and transfer of practice. Um, even if the training's really well done and there's opportunities within the training to practice new techniques, teachers need that ongoing support. And so do administrators to help think about what to look for and how they can support teachers. Um, and so this um, idea of job embedded support is really important. And that this district that we're working with um, has really bought into that and put a lot of resources towards that effort. And they've seen the fruits of their labor, so to speak, in that the student scores are really improving. Um, so, and that's really exciting for us. And so to, to go back to what I was saying about the third party evaluation, um, they found that for the schools that got the support, the job embedded coaching from CORE, um, their students did significant, statistically significantly better um, as opposed to the schools who didn't get the support. So we were able to really kind of link our professional development services to student achievement. And that's a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd actually heard that at the IDA National Conference. You know, there was a lecture specifically on, you know, the teacher training, you know, the implementation, the coaching, the teacher training versus the ongoing professional development. So yeah, I agree that's definitely, that's key to turning, helping turn a district from the balanced literacy direction to the science of reading direction. But right. of course you would know far better than I would. So. Well, it's just, it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, it, it's just investment in human Cap in human capital, human resources, and their learning, you know, and we've historically seen that when districts commit to a long term professional learning for their teachers um, and build in that internal capacity so that we're, uh, we as core aren't there for, you know, decades, that you want to build that internal capacity and have um, literacy and math coaches um, building their knowledge and, and providing support to them so that they can take over the reins, so to speak, and continue providing that support alongside with administrators as well. It takes really teachers, coaches, administrators, all working together to improve instruction for kids and improve a performance for kids. By the way, we've had a comment uh, from, from a teacher saying your reading Bible is awesome with multiple exclamation marks after oh, it. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. I, we get a lot of that feedback across the country. And one parent has asked um, if y'all are doing any work in Indiana. Is that a state that y'all have gone into? We actually um, have, haven't done a ton of work in Indiana, unfortunately. Um, but we recently, I would say about a year ago, I'd have to go back and check our records, but um, worked with South Bend um, implementing SIPs. And um, we, we did some initial training and a little bit of follow-up support, um, but it hasn't gone to a long-term project so and that happens a lot with districts it just especially with covid we've gotten interrupted in a lot of our services um, where districts really had to kind of turn their attention away from um, you know the 
plans that they had for professional development and then think about, you know, like, how do we address this COVID issue, which has been a huge challenge for everybody. And it's nice to see that we're starting to kind of come out of that and kids are starting to come back into school in person. And that's a whole new shift for everybody as well. True. Um, so at least uh, a question has come in and at least us at the Dyslexia Initiative, we don't recommend or, you know, put our backing behind any one curriculum because we're parent advocates. Right. You know, we're not scientists, um, but a question did come in asking is SIPs a program that CORE recommends or, um, I mean, obviously you're working with it, but, and you said too, that sometimes you try to help steer districts to, you know, additional curriculums or other curriculums, et cetera. What are those curriculums and how does SIPs fall into that? Yeah, we fall, we, we, we support a lot of different programs and we try to remain program agnostic, if you will, but certainly understanding that some have more strengths and than weaknesses and some have more weaknesses than strengths. Um, SIPS really is one that we've felt really committed to over the past, um, I'd say six years since we've been in the partnership with them because it really does address the foundational skills in a very systematic, explicit manner in cumulative manner, which is really the focus for structured literacy. Um, so although it's not a comprehensive curriculum and it cannot be taught by itself, and I really wanna emphasize that, that it's only addressing one component of reading. If you think about Scarborough's rope, um, you know, it's that really mainly that decoding aspect. There is some uh, vocab addressing of vocabulary at the morphological level, meaning that there are um, uh, there's attention to developing students' knowledge of meanings of prefixes and suffixes and root words. But that's at the more advanced level of SIPs. Um, so I, again, I'll just emphasize that it's one part of the curriculum on um, really addressing the decoding aspect and foundational skills aspect of reading and vocabulary and comprehension really need to be supplemented or you, you have to use other curriculum um, alongside of that, of, uh, alongside of SIPs. But the beauty of SIPs really is that there's a placement assessment. And so students then enter in at different entry points along the continuum of learning. So there's three levels of SIPs. There's beginning, there's um, uh, extension and challenge. And so it's not grade level curriculum, but you know, beginning is generally associated with kindergarten and maybe uh, the beginning of first grade. And then the extension is really akin to first grade standards um, of what kids are expected to be able to do and a little bit into second grade. And then challenge is really second grade on up, really dealing with multisyllabic words and um, the units of meaning like uh, morphology. Um, so I think that's really the power of SIPs is that's very efficient instruction. And so um, usually the lessons are about 30 minutes per day um, and it's used as an intervention. So it can be a tier one supplement if, those, if the teachers are experiencing, like uh, the one district I described, they're using Benchmark Advance, the California Adopted Curriculum, which has all the components of reading, but they recognize their weaknesses in that. And so um, they're using SIPs in place of that as part of their tier one. But many schools use SIPs as part of their a tier two or even a tier three uh, curriculum. And um, unfortunately it doesn't have um, a, and a research base of implementation. It has the research based components 
And we can say that when we see effective instruction with that curriculum, that kids really can excel, even kids who have dyslexia, um, it's, uh, it, it doesn't have, it's not a program that has evidence that it works. And that's unfortunate because um, it, it is, we know that it works. It just needs studies to back it up and that the company's working on that to try to get that to happen. It's a difficult proposition to have programs researched as a program that you know gets studied and then implemented and have multiple studies. It's it's challenging to do. So there's not a lot out there. Definitely. Um, how? So you know you've got a lot of parent advocates like me across the country, right? That you know I'm here because I have a dyslexic child who's struggling within the educational system. Right. Um, you know, and many of us sit within balanced literacy districts. Um, from your perspective, how could somebody like me help, you know, other than like testifying at the school board, right? How can somebody like me potentially help steer a district to a more evidence-based approach and, you know, help them understand the need for support and professional services such as like what CORE offers? Because I, I have, I'm finding that to be a challenge. You know, it's like you can say, "Hey, I want you to switch from balanced literacy to science of reading," and they're like, "Okay, hey, great," but I think that there's a disconnect between what that means. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, and one of the things that's challenging about this is that a lot of people think about the science of reading as being phonics. Yeah and balanced literacy doesn't teach phonics. And so there's this dichotomy that's created. Um, and it's really unfortunate because it's not representing the full array of complexity of that. Certainly balanced literacy addresses phonics, but in a very different way. And I would say um, lacking research base support um, for it or how it, it's, it's approached. Um, and it's kind of more ad hoc or embedded rather than in a systematic, explicit and cumulative way. So I really like the term structured literacy that the International Dyslexia Association really has coined. Um, and I'm a member of IDA and I'm on the editorial board for the Perspectives on Language and Literacy magazine. Okay. We're actually doing a um, series this summer of, of, of articles um, the theme is implementation of structured literacy. So I'm the theme editor for that edition. And we um, have some different people across the country, California, Mississippi, Michigan, um, who have kind of told their story about how they've kind of moved into the realm of structured literacy and changed their approach. Um, so I, I don't really have, I think, a concrete answer, I think. It, it takes a lot of time and certainly I think having a group approach is more effective than having an individual approach. So what I would recommend is that if there are parents in a district who can kind of group together so and then present this the science and have have information about from what structured literacy is and how that compares to balanced literacy and, and really have the district look at their data and say, here's our third grade reading scores. And here have, here have the third grade reading scores have been over the past you know, 10 years or five years or whatever. Has there been growth? And then 
the other challenging part is depending on where you live, the zip code, um, if you have a lot of students that are, um, you know, have a, a background, you know, and trying to think of the appropriate words. So it's always tricky now, but, um, you know, lower socioeconomic status versus higher economic socioeconomic status, there tends to be um, differences in performance right. and, um, between those two groups. And when you have situations where there are just a small population of lower socioeconomic students in the district, those kids can get kind of hidden away in terms of the larger improvement that's happening. So that's one of the things that I really appreciated about No Child Left Behind is it really forced districts to disaggregate their data, no matter how small the populations were, to say, this is how our African-American students are performing. This is how our Latino students are performing. This is how our special ed students are performing, et cetera. And then thinking about how do we address the needs of those groups who may not be performing at the same levels as other groups? And so that's an important set of data to pull out because it's really easy to say, well, we're doing fine, you know, especially particular schools where they may have very little population, a, a small, very small population of students who aren't doing well. Um, they're saying this is working for most of our kids and some schools are okay with that um, and they shouldn't be. Um, but a lot of it has to do with just lack of education and not understanding really what science of reading is, as you alluded to, um, and, and needing that professional development. Mm -hmm. you know, what I would recommend too is for parents to go to our website, um, go to the, which is corelearn.com. You can go to the, the store link at the top, and then you can find the teaching reading source book. And we have a sampler of pages from that. And they can, it's like maybe 15 or 20 pages. They can print that out, show the topics in that book and say, this is an example of the kinds of things that teachers are learning about across this country in terms of structured literacy and the science of reading. Are you teaching your teachers that? And what are you doing to support that? That's a very concrete thing. And also bringing just some research, you know, and some, there's lots of documents out there that talk about what the science of reading should have. I'm sure you know a lot about that. And you've been talking with people across the country um, for a long time about that. And there's plenty of resources out there that people can use. So I, a long-winded answer to your question, but it's kind of complicated because it's, it's a lot of people are frustrated because um, they feel like they're beating their head up against the wall and districts aren't being responsive to what their needs are. One of the things that, you know, I, my work has been over the past 20 years or plus, plus years in education has been around helping um, teachers in general ed, like tier one instruction, improve that instruction. Because so it's so easy just to focus on intervention and um, tier, you know, tier two and tier three instruction. And that's not the right approach. We need to have our tier one instruction maximized efficiency aligned to the science of reading so we can lessen the damage of instruction that's being provided to kids so that, that we don't have so many kids to intervene for. And even kids who have mild dyslexia can be, their, their dyslexia can be mitigated through high quality tier one instruction. Certainly their dyslexia, as you know, is on a continuum and there are kids that are more severe. And if they're not responding to 
high quality tier one instruction and then an MTSS model tier two and tier three instruction, then they really need to be evaluated for dyslexia and then provided the supports and ongoing teaching that's necessary. But even that high quality instruction um, can lessen the severity of it. And that's where we need to get all of our districts across the country too. And it's, it's a, not an easy task. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I'm in Texas, right? Yeah. So football is king. <laughs> I lived in Texas. I was working. I worked for Texas Reading First Initiative a long time ago. But yeah. So so you get it. And yeah. you know, I remember meeting with school board members, and you know, they kind of started bringing up football. And I was like, look, I don't want to take away from your football money. And I'm going to ask you to spend a lot of money in the beginning, but I'm going to save you a lot of money in the end. And you know, if you can just follow follow the curve, and you know, kids like mine aren't going to need to be, you know, to have an IEP if you can catch them and teach them exactly. correctly in the beginning yep. versus slamming into the dyslexia wall, you know, whether it's, you know, there's lots of articles on the third grade wall for mine, it was the first grade wall. Yep. <laughs> you know, where, where is that exactly, both from reading and from a writing perspective? Because I, I talk a lot about writing too, because my son is also dysgraphic and yeah. you know, the, the writing instruction suffers as much as the reading instruction when things aren't taught explicitly, which you very well know. Well, that's a whole nother conversation yeah. about writing <laughs> because we've really struggled with writing instruction in this country um, for uh, forever. Um, I don't think we've ever gotten much better at writing. Although I can say that I think we've gotten better at reading instruction um, over the past 25 years. I think there's more awareness around phonemic awareness and phonics. I'd still think there's a long way to go. Um, our university teacher preparation programs um, are lacking in many ways around the teaching the science of reading, but they're also hampered by the lack of time that they have training a professional body of knowledge um, there's not a lot of time, you know, it's not like doctors in medical school and lawyers going to law school. Teachers, if they're, if they're going through a traditional um, program at a university, it might be a year, you know, or two at the most that they are um, able to learn teaching methods and then practice their teaching and learning how to teach. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't... To, to answer your question about writing, um, that that to me, I, I don't even, it's it's a whole nother conversation and my expertise is more around reading instruction over writing instruction, but. Right. Well, and I, I'm not trying to paint you into a corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but going back to this is that when you're, when you're teaching reading, when you're teaching decoding skills, there's a companion um, encoding process. And when you're teaching a, a systematic explicit phonics lesson, there's a sequence of instruction that occurs that starts with phonemic awareness development, then teaches kids this, the letter sound correspondence, then practice blending word with that new letter sound correspondence, and then having an opportunity to spell words with that newly learned letter sound correspondence. So when you have, and then practicing reading and decodable text with that new letter sound correspondence and all the previous sound spelling correspondences that were learned before, there's a whole sequence to the instruction. So is, if teachers are understand that sequence, they can then connect the, the, the phonics 
and the encoding, the writing part together to help kids learn to write the, and spell words correctly. So I would say that is, I think, a major component that I'm not sure as many people realize that decoding encoding connection. I definitely agree. And I apologize if you keep hearing my dog. She is not kenneled and is going crazy about absolutely everything because that's what she does. So. <laughs> no worries. I've experienced it too. I've got my dog sitting right here on the couch. He's pretty mellow sleeping <laughs> by my side every day when I work. You know, I, I would say this too, that this, this conversation that we're having now, and I think it's been a really good one over the past few years, and I think it's been catapulted by the dyslexia lobby, you know, uh, uh, decoding dyslexia has been a wonderful catapult for the science of reading across the country, as well as Emily Hanford's, Hanford's podcast series on reading. And I think also we have um, social media now real, and like this is a perfect forum for people to learn more about this and have a national conversation. When I was involved at the beginning, when I first learned about, now just to give it a little bit of my history, I started teaching in 1993. I went to San Diego State University and went through what I was told was a very, you know, um, high quality teacher education program but learned very little about how to teach reading. So I went into my elementary teaching experience knowing that I didn't know how to teach reading. So I didn't want to teach first grade because I knew I didn't have any clue. So I wanted, so I was teaching upper elementary. Um, then I, I taught for a couple of years and then took a, a break from that for a couple of years and had the good fortune of working in a fellowship through the state legislature. And this was in 1996 right when California was moving from a whole language philosophy, our framework our, uh, that Bill Honig, who, found, who founded CORE, um, had really helped to, to frame and, and build a network of whole language instruction. Um, then they wrote a uh, reading program advisory in 1996 to be a complement to the whole language framework to really say, there's a whole science scientific evidence base for learning to read that involves this thing called phonemic awareness and systematic explicit phonics and reading text that's connected to the phonics instruction that they're learning. And this was in 1996. So we've known, we've had this conversation before. Um, and then there was, you know, the California Reading Initiative. Texas had its own reading initiative in the late 90s, and there was a huge amount of investment in training teachers in the Texas Reading Academies, the Governor's Reading Institutes in California. And then there was a billion dollars appropriated to instructional materials in 1999 um, for, um, to align to the new standards. And that really helped us formulate um, a system, in California at least, where we had the knowledge around teaching reading, but then we had materials that were better aligned, not fully aligned, but better aligned to the science of teaching reading. So, um, and then we kind of, we went through reading first and that was in the first few years of the two, early 2000s and that kind of died away due to political reasons and funding and et cetera. And then Common Core came along and everyone was like, yay, we can go back to teaching the way we used to. And um, then we saw the scores dropping and then about 2015, 2016, we saw at CORE anyway, 
a resurgence in people coming back to us saying, we need training and reading because our scores are dropping. And then decoding dyslexia, all the, dysle the dyslexia legislation started kind of spreading like wildfire across the country. Um, then in 2017, Emily Hanford's podcast started. So it's, it's nice to see that we're having this conversation again. And I think I'm hoping that it'll stick because of venues like this that we didn't have 20 years ago. Um, I can't hear you. Because my dogs were barking, yeah. I mute my, muted myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I texted my son to go kennel them. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, and that's a lot of the reason why we sort of founded the Dyslexia Initiative was, you know, we, there's, there's so much dyslogue and there's so many different things, but we wanted to create, you know, help steer the conversation for parents because, you know, parents like me, we're in the trenches, we're trying to work for change and advocate for change. And, you know, it's kind of daunting. It's, it's, it's kind of a scary thing to do, yeah. you know, at yep. the end of the day. Yeah. And that's why I think I really encourage groups of people to work together because not only do you have um, your own child that you're concerned about and you have to advocate for your child or a group of children, you also want to think about why is it that if you're looking at the data for the district, why is it that so many kids are underperforming in reading? And then you have to think about how do you advocate at a larger level to improve reading instruction across the board? Mm -hmm. And um, it, it is a daunting task. And I, I, you know, I, I don't have, other than what I told you about just working in groups, getting research articles and, and, and making connections to people, understanding where they are in education. And it's not like people are doing this necessary, at least the teachers are not doing this on purpose. Like right. they're, they're willingly withholding information from their kids. They're being told by their district, you know, and being trained by their district in approaches and are provided with or not provided with instructional materials that align to the science of reading. And that's where, um, you know, even trying to advocate, get some teacher alignment to those parent groups to help with the conversation, I think can be helpful. I think that the big thing is just, you, you can't be adversarial in the process you really need to and it takes a long time and people are impatient and frustrated your child is in kindergarten or first grade or second grade and struggling and there's no time there's a sense of urgency like I, we got to do this now right and unfortunately <laughs> it's a slower process and i don't and i don't mean to laugh um i shouldn't have done that but because i don't want to minimize the the feelings of frustration that people have um, over this definitely yeah. Um, and to go back to something you said earlier, you know, when you were talking about pulling the data out of the districts, you know, I think in higher socioeconomic districts that becomes more challenging because parents are supplementing their children's education to such a degree. And so you can have higher success numbers, but that's because parents are investing such a large portion of their income to serve their children, right? And so I think those conversations become more challenging in those districts because they're like, but our numbers are great. Well, yeah. But your numbers are not accurately great. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. You know, and I, I've never, it certainly makes sense, but I've, I've never talked with anybody about that specific issue, what you just raised. 
um, because that does then get in the way of the data conversation. Um, and then you have to have data on, well, how many kids are being tutored outside yeah. to get what they need? Um, and that's where then I am, I am, I am. You know? <laughs> right. That's where the groups come in to really start thinking about that. And how do you canvas all the schools across the district to get that data? And the districts don't have that data, right? right. So it certainly is a challenging problem that um, you just really raised in my conscious level about how do you even figure that out, you know? Well, and when we interviewed Emily Hanford as well, you know, she brought that statistic up because mm -hmm. in, in the higher socioeconomic districts, parents are also pulling their kids out for private schools as well. But you have that influx of support that you're not necessarily getting as you shift away from the higher socioeconomic. So the, the statistics are, are kind of skewed, yeah. if you will. Yeah. But then I always, you know, in my head, I always go to something that Dr. Julie Washington said again in one of Emily's podcasts where, you know, it was, she was in one of the low socioeconomic schools. And she said, you know, the, we can't differentiate the dyslexic children from the children that are just struggling from yep. poor education. Yes. So they're, they're all struggling equally across the board, but I can't point to that child across the room and go, that one's dyslexic. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, what does that even at some point you start it starts getting all commingled with just language differences you know in terms of it i'm not just talking about english learners i'm talking about kids who come to school with limited language that impacts their um, ability to learn to read as quickly as others and so that language has to be developed when we think about language development we think of phonology, you know, the sound system, morphology, which is the understanding of larger units of meaning, like prefixes and suffix and root words, um, and then semantics and syntax. And all of those combined together over time, you as you learn to read and learn to write, that's all, that's all part of language development. It's not necessarily separate. It's all mixed together in terms of this idea of language development. And when you're teaching phonics and phonemic awareness and advanced phonics skills, you're developing the phonology and morphology aspect of language. And so a lot of people who are advocating in California for English learners, there's a, a very large English learner lobby in California and they have been not accepting necessarily of efforts to improve reading instruction in California um, for a long time because there's a seen as an overemphasis on phonics um, to the detriment of their language development because certainly English learners need additional language development beyond just high quality reading instruction that will also develop language. They need targeted um, approaches to learning English um, and connecting to their um, existing language. So um, I, I, I just think that um, that this whole idea of language development is something that has to be part of. And Louisa Motes really emphasizes that in her talks, that it's, it's 
we're developing language alongside of teaching reading. And that's that Scarborough's rope going back to the language comprehension side. So that's an important feature to remember. And again, going back to what I said earlier is that when we focus the conversation around the one strand or one component or the decoding strand, um, then the larger conversation gets lost. And so I think it's important also when communicating that it's not just only around phonics and phonemic awareness, but structured literacy and making sure that all the components of reading are and language are addressed. That can yeah, be advocacy work. I remember when the, um, the review of the Teachers College Reading and Writing Workshop came out. Is that a year ago now? That was no, January of last year. Over right? a year, yeah. Because I remember I was traveling. Yeah, it was around uh, January of 2020. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Because Emily released one of her, you know, an interview around that specifically. And I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was Timothy Odegaard, but I, mm -hmm. I, I think that I'm wrong in that association. But that, you know, whoever it was said, can, you know, we have to, we've got to get away from the concept that science of reading is just phonics because it's absolutely not true. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a marketing mechanism that has managed to sell itself quite well, but it's absolutely not true. Can we just all agree on that and move on? Yeah. Well, and here's a prime example of that, how it's unfolded in California. I'll use it as an example. There is uh, legislation uh, to have a dyslexia screener. And this is pretty revolutionary for California because we've never had anything pass. Um, whereas in Texas, back in 1998, they had a early reading screening initiative for K3, all or K2, all kids K2 um, are required to be screened for early reading difficulties. <coughs> and um, in California, we've never had that and really wanted to have something like that. So this is the first time that we've entered into that conversation that the English learner lobby really are advocating that if it's going to be detrimental to English learners, because then kids will be over identified with dyslexia and then their curriculum is going to be narrowed because they're just going to get focused on teaching phonics. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really a red herring, I think, in many ways, I think certainly um, if, if you're not careful um, and districts aren't providing good leadership, um, teachers can over spend an inordinate amount of time on phonics. Um, but, you know, I had some of this problem when we were in, I was working in LA Unified um, with the open court reading program being implemented. This is back in 2000 through like 2003 that I was there. And people were spending a lar larger blocks of time than the program required on the green section of open court, which was the foundational phonics phonemic awareness part. And I think in part, it comes from the lack of understanding about how to teach it. And they get bogged down in the instruction, um, not understanding the program. And there was lots of training that went and coaching that went along with it, but it takes a long time to learn that. And so it, then in, then people see what's happening in practice and then in the implementation of something. And they're saying they're spending too much time on phonics. See, this is not good. The kids aren't learning to comprehend and they're just gonna be word callers. You know, all of these conversations I think have some level of merit but it's also in how things are implemented and how administrators need to have knowledge also of the curriculum, of the science of reading, so that they can then better lead their teachers to 
implement programs effectively. That's a that's a big challenge. Is good implementation of the curriculum. And, and I'll go back to the example that I used in the district near Santa Cruz that we're supporting and have been for a long time. It, it takes a long effort, you know, to mm -hmm. be able to help teachers understand not only the, the, the whys behind the curriculum, but also how do we actually teach it? How do we implement it? And it's not an easy thing just to pick up the book and start teaching away. It's not. Yeah, very true. You know, I, ha I have to, because I'm not a scientist and, you know, I'm not an educator. I'm just, you know, I, I've spent my career in the business world, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> but because of my age, I was taught through the science of reading based on, you know, the years that I went to school before balanced literacy really started re its resurgence in Texas. Yeah. So you went to school in Texas. Okay. I Yeah. yeah. I'm born and raised <laughs> um, and still living here. <laughs> But, um, you know, I hear people talk about the whole phonics thing. And, you know, if you can't sound out the word, I mean, you're just being able to sound out the word. You're not necessarily retaining vocabulary. But I remember, because I'm the youngest child in my family, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a lot younger than my siblings as well. And so they were doing these great big things. And I was dying to grow up just to be like them, right? And my sister was a very avid reader. She always had a book in her hand. I always, you know... I remember reading Grapes of Wrath. Out of all the books she read, for some reason, that's the one that sticks out in my head. Okay. But, you know, I remember those first books and being initially taught how to read in kindergarten and thinking, you know, if I, if I sound out this word, I'm going to recognize this word and then I'm going to know what that word means. And if I don't, I can use the dictionary over here to look up the word in order to find out what that means. And then I can stick that in my vocabulary. <laughs> Exactly. You know, and I feel like when, when people are like, it's only phonics, I'm like, well, what's wrong with phonics? You're still giving keys as access to language. There's, it's, it's, a, it's the doorway. Yeah, it's a critical component. And I certainly don't want to give any indication that I'm minimizing it. It's hugely, oh, not, not at all. But vocabulary, <laughs> vocabulary is also hugely important. And so when you're thinking about instruction in kindergarten and first grade, it really has to be kind of two parallel strands because kids' ability to read the words on the page is, it, their language ability is so much higher than what they can re actually read. Right. So it takes a few years for that to get, to catch up to that. And so what you want to do is as you're teaching phonemic awareness and phonics and this and the letters and how to write the letters and spell and everything, you also have this parallel strand where you're reading aloud to kids, quality, rich literature and um, um, uh, text, the informational text um, to help kid build their knowledge, you know, and, you know, teaching social studies and science topics within reading instruction is something that a lot of publishers, I think, do pretty well in their curricula. Some do better than others, but I think that's pretty much when you look at the, 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 the writing, the, 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 what the kids are reading in their anthologies, there is a nice mix of content. Um, so that's an important feature of early instruction that kids should not just be relegated to reading decodable text or leveled text, um, you know, that they should be hearing on a daily basis, high quality literature that's gonna continue to build their vocabulary. And for kids who come with 
limited vocabularies, then you need to do even more with that and do specific teaching of words and word learning strategies. There's a whole science to teaching vocabulary, mm -hmm. you know, aside from teaching phonics. So um, it's, it's a super complex task. Um, Louisa Motz's article, you know, teaching reading as rocket science is certainly true. Yeah. However, um, when teachers have training and support and high quality materials, the, the training that helps them understand how kids learn to read and how to teach phonics and phonemic awareness and, um, and vocabulary, and they have the materials that are aligned with that knowledge base that they're learning, they, they get it, they can do it. But if they're not provided with the knowledge or the materials, then they're just, they're struggling and it's not fair. And we know too much about what to do mm -hmm. um, to continue this and to, and to do things like balanced literacy. You know, you go back to that units of study. It's not just that they lack phonics. I'm sure you read the report. There's a whole, it's lacking in voc systematic vocabulary development and building knowledge. I mean, it's all of the components of Scarborough's rope that Right. The units of study doesn't adequately address. Maybe some parts they do better than others, but overall it doesn't. And there is a huge um, alignment in this country to that those units of study. And you know they're trying to scramble to kind of improve those and everything. And it's like, there's stuff out there now that people can use, mm -hmm. they should be using. And a lot of districts are, you know, but there's still a long way to go. Definitely. Yeah. So I want to switch gears because we've we've been talking for a while and I don't want to keep you forever because I'm sure you <laughs> you have plans for your day. But one of the things you and I talked about when we were exchanging emails was all of the content that you have on your website and the different videos, et cetera. And you know, I find that a lot within the parent community, you know, they're just they're seeking the information that they can, you know, just take in and absorb, whether it's videos, it's books, it's yeah. So, absolutely. But you know, if, if, if am I able to share my screen? Um, or is it something that's not because it's Facebook, it's not? Um, I think, did I just allow it? Uh, I don't know. Let me, let me try it. Let me, let me, let me go here. Um, if not, I can make you the host and you can share. Okay, give me a second here. I'm trying to get myself set up here. I'm going to see if I can share my screen. I think I can. Can yeah, you, I figured it out. Yeah. I had to make Pete write the host last week because I couldn't figure out. It just it went up to a whiteboard though, so I'm not sure why the white. Okay, can you see my screen? No. Oh. Uh, you know what I can do though? I can make you the host. Okay, make just the when host. we're done, you'll have you'll be the one in the Zoom. Okay, <laughs> let's see but if that works. Let me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I started going on my tangents of different things. And um, we do have a wealth of resources that parents and teachers can use. Are, am I the host now? You are. Okay, so let me, give me a second here to get myself set up again. So I'm not. Oh, okay, I see. I think I could have done, I was on the wrong thing when I shared. So I shared the whiteboards. So that's why the whiteboard, can you see it now? Yes. Good, okay. So this is our website. 
And if you, along the screen band, um, here's information about our online reading course. And it gives kind of, um, you know, how much it costs and everything. People can find out more about it. And, and we have different um, uh, courses, like we call, I said, the mixed courses. So June 3rd and September 16th are the ones that anyone can register for. And parents, if they wanted to, could as well. Um, we haven't had very many parents do that, but it's certainly, I think the course and the book that we have um, are user friendly in that regard. Okay. But if you go to the, the resources tab, it's kind of near the right side, click on that and you scroll down just a little bit, you see all these buttons. Mm -hmm. um, there, as I wrote a, a white paper on dyslexia, we have other white papers that we've written. Um, there are, and this is really the one key thing I want to show everybody is the webinars. We've got some wonderful webinars. They're one hour webinars. We've got big names that have done, Julie Washington has done a webinar for us. Louisa Motes has done a couple different webinars for us. Um, David Kilpatrick um, has done some. These are great names in reading. And so what I would recommend is people just clicking on this webinars tab, taking, just scrolling down and seeing all the different options they have. And they can go to town watching one hour webinars. And you can see we've got five or more pages of these links to the different webinars. Um, but going back to the resources tab, um, we've got videos of instruction that people can use. We've got our newsletters and blogs. Um, our academic quarterly um, is written uh, three times a year. And I've done several um, specific editions on dyslexia. Um, one, one that I think is really important was kind of helping differentiate between screening for dyslexia or early reading difficulties and evaluating for dyslexia. I think that's a challenge for many people mm -hmm. that, um, that the idea of screening for dyslexia doesn't mean that the kid has dyslexia, but it right. means that they are exhibiting risk factors that may eventually, if not, if something's not done, that mm -hmm. they, Lead to dyslexia and so then you use that information from screening then to provide high quality tier one tier two or intervention as needed um, and then if they're not um, if they're not responding to that intervention and instruction and you've done different things to try to make sure that instructions high quality um, targeted aligned to the science of reading and they're still not responding then you can start thinking okay Maybe there's a challenge here. And what's, what's, what's challenging about that, I know I'm going off the, challenge, the, the topic here a little bit, but I wanna say this, that many districts who don't have the understanding of the, what effective intervention looks like for kids who struggle with reading, they're giving them more balanced literacy intervention. Right. Level literacy intervention is one that's very popular. And <laughs> so it's not meeting the needs of the kids and so in, when we were writing the dyslexia guidelines for one state, the, the, some of the parents and dyslexia advocates were saying, we want our kids to be identified with dyslexia right out of the gate because then we want them to get the proper services rather than getting, um, going through this MTSS model where then they're gonna get interventions that are not effective. And so it's a super complex issue that it still needs a lot of work to be solved. But, I digress. Um, well, well, but no, I think you bring up a great point, you know, yeah. because a lot of our community talks about RTI and, mm -hmm. you know, we talk a lot about RTI and, mm -hmm. you know, but at its core, RTI is a great theory. It's not usually implemented well, because like you said, the child goes into RTI, 
and we like to call it death by RTI, but they go into RTI and they're just getting more balanced literacy. Yeah. And that's really where we need to, I learned balanced literacy in 1993 when I started my first teaching uh, stint. Mm -hmm. I was learning about the three queuing systems. And at that time, I had gotten whole language from San Diego State where it's just read to your kids and here's some phonics games and go go to town teaching. When I got that training, I was like, well, at least this is more organized. It's a more organized form of whole language, but I still don't feel like I can know how to teach reading. What is this three queuing system? And they've even simplified it even more with the three queuing system. They're talking about um, MSV, you know, meaning syntax and visual. And before it was semantic syntax and graphophonemic or graphophonic cue. And when you think about the term graphophonic or graphophonemic, it's graph, which is the, the, the spelling of the word, you know, the, mm -hmm. how the letters are organized. And then the phone is the sound. So sounds and spellings together, that's more accurate than just visual. Now they're calling it visual, meaning relegating reading to just a visual thing. And it's a, reading is not a visual act. It's, a, it's an auditory, it's a language-based act. So I'm just, again, I digress, but um, <laughs> newsletters, videos, the webinars, I would really recommend people coming to the website and checking out our webinars. They're amazing and fantastic. Um, we just had a recent one on, um, by uh, Selenide uh, Gonzalez, who um, worked with Linnea Airy, um, who is a, renowned researcher in the whole issue around phonics and phonemic awareness and decoding. Um, she did this wonderful webinar on connected phonation versus segmented phonation in terms of how to sound out words. And there's research to show that when you continue the sounds, when you're teaching kids to sound out words versus segmenting them, it's there with it, the sounds are held in their memory better and they can attack the word more easily. So that's just a very specific detail. So I would highly recommend this, um, just watching this one, but certainly look at using phonics assessment data to inform instruction, mm -hmm. the ABCs of using assessment data to target phonics instruction. So we have a lot of stuff around phonics, but we also have other things around vocabulary development and also math ones as well. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'll stop sharing. <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing, I mean, I'm blown away. That's an amazing resource. And we've actually had a principal comment saying um, that pricing was actually quite fair, <laughs> that they've seen a lot for far more. So um. oh, good. Well, <laughs> I, we try to stay competitive. Um, so yeah, it's um, I know it, district budgets are tight a lot of times. I think this coming year, districts will have some more flexibility with money because of COVID and try uh, attempts to try to help with unfinished teaching and learning. So I'm we're hoping for last year was a tough year for uh, this past year was a tough year for us financially because a lot of districts had to concentrate on other things. So our services were not as needed. Yeah, needed a lot of computers were bought for kids that needed access to computers for our virtual yeah. educational world. Yeah. Um, well, this has been an amazing session and you've shared so much information. I don't, you know, I don't want to take up any, I promised you I'd only take up an hour and we've been going longer than that. So. That's okay. I, I get, I'm passionate about this work. And so I'm happy to talk and I'm happy to come back again at some point if you um, feel like you want to hear more. Definitely. We would definitely bring you back. So, but I want to 
Um, I want to let you go for the day and let everybody, we've got a ton of comments, um, tried to take a look at all of them. I invite you as well, if that's something that you want to do. Yeah. But. Uh, and I'll just say some final words to everybody who's listening that. Please. Um, that's what I was about to ask. Yeah, just, just keep up the good fight. Um, make yourself as knowledgeable as possible um, around reading instruction, uh, the science of reading and what that actually means. And continue to advocate as frustrating as it is. I think the one suggestion that I could all repeat was that don't do this alone. There are people out there um, to support you. And Ashley, I know you can provide resources for people, but there's tons of resources out there um, that help people understand the science of reading. Um, and just keep keep at it. That's all I can say. Um, don't give up. Um, it's it's a, a long haul, and I, but I think we're at a good place now. I think we're, we're getting there. I think we're learning, people are learning more and, and really ultimately we have to believe and you as parents and teachers and administrators all have to believe that everyone wants to do the right thing. And when we know better, we do better. And that's really what it is. It's about education. Definitely. You know, and we've, we've said quite often it's through unification of our efforts that things are really going to change. Yeah. As long as we work in silos, we're only going to get so far, but our voices united together, I think are really going to create great things for our children in the future. Absolutely. A great way to say it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. That, well, thank you so much. Um, so we're going to sign off everybody. I hope you have a really great weekend and a reminder to you, Dr. Webster, you're going to end the Zoom. Oh, sounds good. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you so Bye. much. <laughs> and meeting for all. Here we go.